everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all-new episode. We're actually returning to the state of Florida. Still in Florida. We love it. I didn't realize that we were going to have two Florida back-to-backs, but it is Florida. So... Before we get started, just want to take a moment and thank everyone that's reached out to us. We greatly appreciate it or has subscribed to the podcast or told a friend about the podcast. We are pretty much a word of mouth podcast. And just want to point out for those, if you're just joining us listening, we do have a website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our episodes, all of our show notes, all of the resources we use to bring you our episodes, because we want to give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. And of course, our contact page. And in addition, you can join our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta, Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D. We also have a Twitter and a YouTube. So there, and I think Twitter is at Criminal Pod. Find us, follow us, subscribe to us, comment, all the things. Yes, all the things. All right. So we are going to jump right into this because I don't really have any updated crime news at this time. Sophia Tuscondeplantier, still investigating that. Sheila Keen Warren, still awaiting trial. So nothing really new. All right. So like I said, we're going to Florida. This time our story takes place in Orlando, Florida, located in Orange County, initially inhabited by the Timochua and later the Seminole indigenous tribes. So Orlando was originally named Jernigan after Aaron Jernigan, one of the first settlers in the area. Could you imagine? We're planning our family vacation to Disney in Jernigan. I had no idea that it was never always Orlando. No. It was not. It was Jernigan. But it was renamed in 1857 to honor an army sentry killed in the Seminole War, Orlando Reeves. So Orlando is one of the most visited destinations in Florida, mainly due to Walt Disney World Resort and Universal Studios. On a side note, Walt Disney, when looking to build his resort, had looked into two other locations, one being Tampa, the other being Miami. But he settled on Orlando due to its location being more inland and not as susceptible to the hurricanes as they would have been on the coast. Smart. So talking about hurricanes, on September 2nd, 2004, Hurricane Ivan was making its way to Florida and the United States Gulf Coast, prompting voluntary evacuations of the Florida Keys. Now, for that reason, 37-year-old Michelle Jones, a sales manager at the Golf Channel, contacted her aunt and uncle who lived in the Florida Keys and invited them to stay at her place in Orlando to ride out the storm. So Michelle, who was single, had a close relationship with her aunt, Terry, who was her mother's sister. So Terry, who was 46 at the time, and Carl, that goes by Charlie, Brant, who was 47, lived in Big Pine Key. So Hurricane Ivan was turning into a massive event that would, in the end, would be responsible for 91 deaths throughout the Caribbean and the United States. Ivan ran a 5,600-mile track and lasted over 22 days, 10 of which were as a major hurricane. So at its height, Ivan had winds up to about 120 miles per hour and caused about $26.1 billion of damage. I think in today's money, that rounds up to about $37 billion. So at the time, it was one of the biggest hurricanes to, I believe, hit that area. Since then, I think we've had worse, but yeah, that was a big one for back then. I remember that one. We were in Myrtle Beach at the time, and I was really bummed about it. We had to evacuate when that was coming through, so... Yeah. Fortunately, we weren't devastated by it. We were vacationing, not living there. But yeah, it was really bad. And then Katrina happened the following year and everyone forgot about Ivan. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big time. Katrina outdid Ivan. So while Michelle's aunt and uncle were staying with her, Michelle's would keep in touch with her mother daily. And this is something they always did. And her mom's name was Mary Lou. So Mary Lou became really concerned when she couldn't get a hold of Michelle after Monday, September 13th. Now, on the 13th, Michelle had spoken to her friend, Lisa Emmons, who was planning to go over to Michelle's house that evening on the 13th. But Michelle told her not to come as Charlie and Terry had been drinking and that had led to them arguing. So she's like, yeah, just stay away. Give it. So on Wednesday, September 15th, Mary Lou contacted another friend of Michelle's, Debbie Knight, and asked her to go over to Michelle's house while she remained on the line with her. So I believe they had cell phones. Debbie did as Mary Lou asked. And when she arrived, she was immediately alarmed by a few things. First, there was two days worth of mail coming out of the mailbox, and there were some newspapers on the ground. And when she tried to use her key in the front door, it didn't work. So Debbie decided to go around back. And when she looked in the glass door leading to the garage, she was met with a horrific sight. Hanging from the rafters with a bed sheet tied around his neck was Charlie Brandt. Debbie immediately contacted the police. Now, I had watched a 48 Hours mystery episode on this case, and Debbie stated that when the three Seminole County Sheriff's deputies arrived, they had entered the home, only to return about 40 seconds later, all throwing up in the front yard. Oh, are you about to tell us why? Yes. So Detectives Rob Hemmert and Bob Janice arrived on scene to discover what had the officer's so upset. So in the living room on the couch slumped over was Terry Brandt. She looked to have been stabbed seven to eight times in the chest. Now detectives believe that she may have been the first victim. Now in Michelle's bedroom, they discovered that unlike Terry, Michelle only had a single stab wound to her chest. However, what was done to her was beyond horrendous. And both stabbings, they determined, were done with a knife from Michelle's kitchen. What I'm about to share is a little grotesque, so if that's not your thing, just kind of hit the fast-forward button and we'll be through it soon enough. So it goes to the, really, the one of the main points of the story. So Michelle's head had been removed from her body and positioned on the bed so it faced her body. Her hair had looked to have been brushed away from her face as to not obstruct the view. Her breasts had been cut off, as was her left leg. Her heart and other organs were also removed in what detectives felt was a very surgical manner. So this was also like, especially the hair away from her face is like a display. Yes. And precise. Precision. There, there wasn't, it wasn't a hacking in any terms. They didn't feel this was very precise, like done by a surgeon. Took a lot of time, probably, too. Yes. So detectives believe that Charlie had committed the murders and then committed suicide, leaving behind no note. There were no signs of struggle. And so they surmised that, like you said, he had spent several hours with Michelle's body. And when finished, he had removed his clothing, leaving it beside her bed on the floor. And also on the floor of her bedroom were cut up Victoria's secret bras and underwear that were scattered around the room. Now, when Charlie finished, he went to the garage climbed the stepladder, tied a bed sheet around his neck, and hung himself. I do not know if he had clothes on or not. I couldn't find anything that said oh. he had redressed. He may have. So detectives tried to figure out Charlie's motive for the killings. And to do that, they needed to find out more about him. So they traveled 400 miles away to Big Pine Key. 
going to the Brandt house. And when they arrived, they noticed that it was meticulously boarded up, just the way the Brandts had left it. And inside, nothing stood out to detectives at first until they entered the deceased couple's bedroom. That's when detectives knew their theory of Charlie killing Michelle may not have been his first time. Charlie Brandt was trained as an engineer, and he worked as a radar technician for Ford Aerospace. Now, his job didn't explain why on the back of the couple's bedroom door was an anatomy poster of the female skeletal and muscular systems. One of those ones you'd buy, I guess, if you were a med student, and it has, you know, half skeleton, half muscular, but you can tell it's a female because the head area, the hair's in a bun. Oh. Oh. There were also various medical journals and surgery-themed books, as well as numerous Victoria's Secret catalogs, all addressed to Charlie Brandt. He had a monthly subscription. Mm, as, as creepers do. Not his wife. He did. So detectives also looked at Charlie's computer and found that he often visited websites focused on necrophilia, looking at autopsy photos, and viewing of snuff films depicting violence against women. Now, in talking with people that worked with Charlie, they found out that he often talked about Michelle, referring to her only as Victoria's Secret. He would tell his coworkers how beautiful Michelle was, and his coworkers never knew her name was Michelle because he always referred to her as Victoria's Secret. He seemed infatuated with her and may have been planning what he did to her for a long time, turning fantasy into reality, or at least that's what detectives were thinking. So detectives surmised from the evidence that Charlie had committed the murders, perhaps again propelled by his infatuation with extremely disturbing fantasies against women. They didn't believe what he did to Michelle was his first time in doing so and started to look into other cases that involved similar modus operandi. Meanwhile, as the investigation is going on, Michelle's family is just left bewildered, trying to reconcile the Charlie they knew this mild manner brother-in-law that they knew for over 17 years, and the man that brutally killed their daughter and Mary Lou's sister, Terry. Everyone the police talked to described the Brandt marriage as a happy one. Terry was described as kind and carefree, and Charlie, maybe a little quiet, somewhat of an oddball, but completely harmless. Mm -hmm. They had what friends described as the perfect marriage, with them even making each other's lunches because they said it tasted better when the other person made it. Now, that's true. <laughs> well, Kinda I can't cute. even make my own lunch. So. <laughs> One person that was thankful for Charlie committing suicide was his sister, Angela. She told Mary Lou right after the murders that she could finally sleep at night. The reason for her relief is a family secret she would soon share with police. So again, early on in the investigation, you know, they're looking for answers as to why this person with no criminal background would do such a thing. That's when detectives were approached by Charlie's older sister, Angela, and she would tell the detectives this well-kept family secret that had them looking at Charlie Brandt in a different light. So now we're going to go back to January 3rd, 1971 when Charlie was 13 years old, and he was living with both of his parents and his older sister, Angela, who was 15 at the time, and two younger sisters, I don't know their ages, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So his mother at this time was seven to eight months pregnant. That evening, his parents were in their bathroom with his mom soaking in the bathtub and his father standing at the mirror shaving when Charlie entered holding a gun. And this was just after 9 p.m. 
Angela was in her room when she heard her father say, Charlie, don't do it. Charlie shot his father in the back several times, then turned the gun on his mother. His mother called out to Angela to call the police, and these would be the last words she ever spoke as Charlie fired several more rounds into her. Charlie then went after Angela, and the two started fighting after the gun failed to fire. And Angela kept trying to calm Charlie down to reassure him by telling him she loved him, it would be okay. Angela would tell detectives that she saw madness in his eyes, and he had this glazed-over look that eventually did disappear. She claimed Charlie said, quote, you are going to leave me, aren't you? Unquote. Angela told him no, but as soon as she was able to, she ran out the front door into the snow in nothing but her bloody nightgown, screaming, running to the nearest neighbor's home. Angela pounded on her neighbor's front door, and inside was 16-year-old Sandy Radcliffe. She heard this pounding, wondering what is going on, but by the time she got to the door, Angela was already headed to another neighbor's house. However, Charlie was standing there, telling her that he had shot his mom and dad. Oh my gosh. So Charlie was taken into his custody. His father had been rushed into surgery and did survive and was eventually questioned by police. And Mr. Brandt kept telling detectives at the time he didn't know why Charlie did what he did. There was no indication that he would do such a thing. So in Indiana at the time, a 13-year-old was considered too young to be held criminally responsible. So in Charlie's case, charges were never filed. However, there was a grand jury investigation to try to discover the motive for his crimes. I mean, he murdered his pregnant mother, attempted to murder his father and sister. And his two younger siblings were also in the home, but I don't think they were involved in any of this, nor did they maybe not wake up. So I'm thinking they were fairly young. So from those proceedings, Charlie was recommended for psychiatric treatment due to concerns that, and this is from the grand jury report, quote, such antisocial conduct could repeat itself in the future, unquote. No truer words. So Charlie underwent three separate psychological evaluations by three different psychiatrists, and this was to determine the cause of his murderous actions. Authorities were looking for answers as to why, again, he killed his mother, pregnant mother, and attempted to kill his father and sister, who knows if he would have then turned on his younger siblings. Unfortunately, that answer would never be discovered. All three psychiatric evaluations stated that Charlie had no diagnosable mental illness. Charlie Brandt was determined to not have been hallucinating at the time. He was found to be mature for his age. He did well in school. He had no behavioral issues in school or at home or in the community. He was a loving kid who loved his family and showed no signs of mental illness. But Charlie was sent to an Indiana psychiatric hospital for a year. And that was until his father petitioned the courts and won his release. Now, soon afterwards, the family moved to Ormond Beach, Florida, and the quote-unquote incident was never talked about again. The family went on like it never happened. This family secret was so well-kept that Charlie's younger sisters always believed that their mother had died in a car accident. They were never told the truth until all of this broke. Interestingly enough, Charlie's father and his new wife, along with the two younger sisters, had moved back to Indiana the following year, so they'd only been in Florida for about a year, and Charlie and his sister Angela stayed behind in Florida and lived with their grandparents. Do you imagine trying to live in the house with him after that happened? <laughs> well, I think that's why Angela told Mary Lou, I haven't been able to sleep. I can now sleep. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. So Mary Lou never believed her sister Terry knew what Charlie had done when he was 13. She didn't feel her sister would have ever gone through with marrying him or putting her niece's life in jeopardy. Melissa's parents really directed their disdain towards Charlie's father, Herbert, who never bothered to reach out to them after the murder, instead continuing to hold on to this family secret. He never went to the police. It was Angela who did so. Kind of living in denial a little bit. Possibly. However, there is someone who believes Terry did know about her husband's past, and that was Charlie's former brother-in-law, Jim Graves. Jim had been married to Charlie's sister Angela in the 80s, and she had confided in him about what Charlie had done. So before Charlie married Terry, Jim advised him to tell Terry about his past, as he was not only the best man in their wedding, but he was the one that introduced them. So he felt, you know, she needs to know this going into this. And Jim believes that Charlie did tell Terry because of a conversation he had with Terry about the couple having children. Terry told him that considering everything that happened in the past, it's not a good idea to have kids. Now, he didn't follow up on what considering meant, but he assumed Charlie had told her what he had done. So Jim also couldn't believe, really, when this all came out, that he ended up murdering Terry and Melissa, but he did relate a conversation he had with Charlie to 48 Hours, and this was right after Jim divorced Angela. The pair met up for drinks, and their conversation turned to the topic of revenge. So that is when Charlie told him that if you want revenge, you need to, quote, kill them and cut their heart out, unquote. That statement creeped Jim out at the time, but he dismissed it as guy talk. You know, you're sitting around the bar, you're drinking. Years later, he thinks there possibly might have been more to that conversation. So detectives, like I said, began to look at other unsolved cases that fit this MO of Charlie's. And they decided to look at Charlie's travel schedule for his work. So part of his job took him across various parts of Florida, but around the U.S. and sometimes internationally. So detectives put out to law enforcement agencies, especially around Florida, any inquiries into any similar murders focusing specifically on what he had done to Michelle's body. Now, criminal profiler Leslie D'Ambrosia, she was also on 48 Hours, and she might have worked on this task force Florida had put together at the time. And she stated that, quote, how killers normally behave translates into how they carry out their crimes, unquote. So in Charlie's case, he was quite organized. He was a planner. He was intelligent. He was very reliable, very responsible. This is how he conducted himself in his everyday life. Charlie's trademark lies in his precision and methodical techniques. So like the detective said, when they pulled up to his house, you know, usually if you're boarding up your house, you're kind of doing it quick, just making sure you cover the windows. His were perfectly cut out and fitted into each windowsill, right? You know, everything was precise. So detectives from Orlando got a hit on an unsolved cold case from July 16th, 1989. And this was just about a thousand feet from Charlie and Terry's house. The partially clothed body of 38-year-old Sherry Parisho was discovered under the North Pine Channel Bridge by a local fisherman. Monroe County homicide detective Trish Dowley reported that a fisherman thought he had caught a mannequin on his line. Again, it's really a mannequin. It was not. Now, Sherry was a local woman who was considered homeless, and she lived on a small rowboat. And every night, she would take her belongings, put it on the boat, put her bike on the front of the boat, and, and row about 100 yards offshore. 
which is kind of smart. <laughs> I mean, for safety purposes. Mm-hmm. Detectives believe that it is also where she died. At the time, police theorized that she was dismembered on the rowboat due to cut marks found on the wood on the bottom of the boat. Sherry's throat had been slashed and her heart had been cut out. For years, all authorities had to go on was a sketch of a man seen running across U.S. Route 1 the night she was murdered. And I have to say, looking at the sketch, it's spot on for a younger Charlie Brandt. And I believe in one of the resource, I can't remember which one, but one of the resource sections, if you look on some of those articles, it's in there. So Jim Graves on 48 Hours said that he had a conversation with Terry a few weeks after Sherry's murder. And she told him that someone had been killed not too far from their home. And she told him also that she was thinking of calling the sheriff's office. And when he asked her why, she just said because of Charlie's past. Ooh. Graves was stunned and later confronted Charlie about his wife's suspicions. And all Charlie said was, I didn't do it. Now, Jim would add more detail when detectives talked to him again. And I believe this was after Terry and Michelle's murder. And he stated that Terry was suspicious of Charlie because she found him wet and covered in blood the night of the murder. She asked him what happened and he told her he was filleting fish. And she thought it was odd at the time since it was a work day and late in the evening to be doing such activity. I don't believe she ever called the sheriff's office. Now, due to Jim's statements, it was enough to close Sherry's case on May 6, 2006. Wow. So this makes you wonder if it's not his infatuation with Michelle only as the motive for these murders, but also a little revenge on Terry for these suspicions. Maybe she was catching on to his ways. I did read one article that they were to leave a day earlier, but Charlie wanted to stay. So I think it sounds like they were there for almost a week or so. And I think the fantasies grew. He didn't have an outlet. He might not have had his computer. He might not have been able to, you know, look at the photos or look at the magazines. And and again, this is just, you know, spitballing here that he just caught, caught up in this fantasies and decided to enact them. And after he knew he had to get Terry out of the way, so he stabbed her. And who knows what they were arguing about? Right, right. The argument. That was the why she told her friend not to come over, the argument. So maybe Terry was catching on that things were getting a little bit out of control and she wanted to get out of there and he didn't. He stabbed her repeatedly and then carried out his plan. Yeah. Well, I wonder too, how far had he planned it? Because even like boarding up the house, was he planning on returning back to his home, protecting it like that? Or was it just making it look like everything was kosher? So no one asked questions, you know, why didn't you take care of your place before you left? No, I think that was he would have done that anyways, because I think that's when you live in the Keys, I'm sure you're very prepared for hurricanes coming through. So that but that was just what he did. That's what everyone does. Yeah. So I don't think that had anything to do with the planning. I think he went because again, he didn't take anything with him. Right. The knife he used were knives from her kitchen. So another murder victim tied to Charlie from the Miami area was in 1995. A sex trade worker from Little Havana, Darlene Toller, was found along an area highway. Her head and heart had been removed. Detective Pat Diaz felt that whoever killed Darlene knew what they were doing. 
Now, two bits of evidence convinced Detective Diaz that Charlie is the prime suspect, or maybe the only suspect, for Darlene's murder. When Darlene had been found, she had been wrapped up in plastic, and then over the plastic was a blanket. And he said the wrapping was almost like she was gift-wrapped, again, being that meticulous. In the blanket were two dog hairs, and these dog hairs were similar to dog hairs also found in the back of Charlie's truck. Another clue was due to Charlie being meticulous and writing down his mileage. I know we keep using that word meticulous, but really he was. It fits. In those records, it showed a hundred mile trip from Charlie's home to where Darlene was last seen. Detectives believe that Charlie drove from Key West to Miami to hunt for a victim. Now, detectives did not do DNA testing on the dog hairs to see if they were a match due to the cost at the time. So if and when they do, detectives do believe that this will be a match. So in their mind, this is solved for the most part. Yeah, that makes me wonder, too, about our last case with Roberto Fernandez in the same, you know, mid to late 90s time period and area, the Miami area unsolved cases, especially that one in May 99 with Delia Mendez, the one who her body was cut in half. Mm -hmm. They described it possibly as big, heavy machinery, but I don't know. Well, we know he liked to he liked to cut people up, and it was very it was described as a very clean, precise mutilation of her body, and that was the only one of the unsolved cases we talked about on the last episode that involved the mutilation to that extent. So makes me think about that. We could have just made a connection. Hey, we're just solving unsolved cases left and right here. <laughs> With no experience check, necessary. Check, check, check. So after Michelle and Terry's murder, again, detectives poured over Charlie's life. And in the end, they ended up putting together a 35-page timeline of his life. So since 1973, when the Brants moved to Florida, there had been 26 unsolved slangs just in Florida that fit Charlie's M.O. Maybe your one from the Fernandez case was one of them. Wow. Two additional cases that authorities felt that Charlie had a hand in are a 1978 murder of Carol Sullivan, who was 12 years old at the time. She had been abducted from a school bus stop in Volusia County on September 20th. And when she was found, her skull was actually found in a bucket. That's all they say about it. They don't say anything else about any other organs or anything like that. So at the time, Charlie was 20 years old and living in Volusia County. So I think that's how they just, again, where he was living. And then this murder, again, with body mutilation is the connection they're making. Yeah, not a lot of people are out there cutting up bodies after they do things like this. I hope not. <laughs> So the other one is from 1988, Elisa Saunders, 20 years old. Now, hers was a little different. She had been driving in a car and she had been pulled from her car, beaten and stabbed. And this was in December in Big Pine Key. When she was found, her heart was missing. Now, authorities don't know, though, was it initially cut out or if vultures had gotten to it? So I'm kind of like, well, I think vultures wouldn't be as precise, but I don't know. I don't know. I tell you what, I've been to the Everglades and the Keys, and I've been face to face with some of those vultures down there. They're pretty big. I could see them ripping a heart out, but not precisely. I don't know about that. And this is 1988, and Sherry was killed in 1989. Mm, that's awful close. So is he honing his skills, mm -hmm. so to speak? Okay, well, here's my big question about all of this. This is what gets me going here. Angela, 
Why didn't you tell your in-laws about Charlie and Jim? Why did you just say, oh, Charlie, you should really tell them about this. Why didn't you tell them about this? I don't know. I mean, she told her husband and her husband told Charlie to tell Terry and he felt that Charlie did tell Terry based upon conversations they had had. But Mary Lou and her husband, Michelle's parents, even Michelle had no clue as to the background. For whatever reason, Terry did not share that with them. The only thing I could think is maybe she was, Angela was maybe still a little afraid of Charlie or there was shame. I'm sure. She's traumatized by this whole thing. I can't yell at her too much, but as she told Mary Lou, you know, she can finally sleep. Mm -hmm. She can sleep without being afraid. Mm -hmm. And so I think a fear factor was there. I think this was a long held family secret. She was afraid, clearly. That is why Mary Lou and her husband really tried to pursue some legislation as most family do of murder victims, you know, trying to get laws changed, become more stringent. They wanted something where there'd be a registry that no matter, I guess, your age, if you kill someone, you are registered somewhere, um, like a sex offender registry. Yeah. But to this day, I don't think there's any registries out there unless you're of legal age and you've been convicted of a criminal offense. Yeah, I was going to say after researching some of the cases we have in Pennsylvania, and all the child murderers in Pennsylvania that we're famous for. Yeah, I guess he probably would have been in trouble here if uh, he'd have. Well, and th- but that was the law in Indiana at the time. You could not criminally charge a 13-year-old. But that is why they had the grand jury to try to at least ascertain some kind of motive. That's why he had the psychiatric evaluations. Some articles I read, and I believe it might have been on 48 Hours Mystery too. And I have a link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. You can watch it is the one psychiatrist saying there was just no diagnosable mental illness at the time. There were no pets missing from the neighborhood. He he wasn't a fire starter. He didn't wet his bed. I mean, there were no indications whatsoever that he would do this. The only thing I read was, I guess, a week or two before the murders, his father had taken him out hunting. That was it. You know, nothing stood out would have caused him to suddenly grab a gun one night and and kill his, try to kill his parents and his family. That's maybe the scariest part, that it could just be a normal seeming child and they just flip like that. Although it was 13 years old, maybe this had something to do with changes in his psyche that were going on during puberty. I don't know. Possibly, but clearly the grand jury had it right because they felt that this would show itself, this antisocial behavior in the future, and clearly just had been brewing and growing. You know, detectives saw that when they looked at his computer. I mean, he's watching snuff films. He's looking at autopsy photos. He has skeletal muscular chart on the back of the bedroom door, which makes me think Terry did know. Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing to have hobbies. You know, my husband brews beer. But he's not we, having... We research murder cases. <laughs> we research murder cases. But he's he has surgical books, like how to conduct surgeries and cut through muscle and tissue and, and bones. And, and he's watching these snuff films. And he has his own subscription to Victoria's Secrets, which, okay, maybe you're thinking, well, it's not Playboy, you know, at the time when Playboy was, right. you know, pretty popular. But still... Creepy. Creepy. Super skeevy dude. So that is the case of Charlie Brandt, the Victoria's Secret Killer. At least he didn't go on to do more. He just ended it. Well, he might have done a lot. We don't know. He's not really tied to any of these other crimes that they suspect. But, you know, he, he 
Sherry, they do think he did. Definitely Michelle, definitely Terry, possibly Darlene, and then these other two suspected, but there may be more. I think we need to get out of Florida with these next few cases so people don't Yeah, start we're not hitting hard Florida. on Florida. I like Florida. <laughs> so, sorry. We love Florida. Have relatives in Florida. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like this episode, all we would ask is that whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could, one, subscribe, and two, leave us a review, that would be great. As always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like Jim coming forward, at least in sharing with police his conversations with Terry about Sherry's murder. Or your husband starts looking at necrophilia websites. That might be a clue. It would definitely be a concern. <laughs> so as always, we want you to stay safe out there. Remember, we need to look out for one another. And we also need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. bye.